In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at aspirient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cammy and Sandy. This is Sandy. On today's Money Tales, our guest, Cicely Gay, broke one of the biggest stereotypes. She is African-American and was a single mom at age 16. While the system tried to categorize her as having cat potential, Cicely was smart, observant, and curious. One teacher and one flyer changed the trajectory of her life forever. Today, she's a single mom to three accomplished sons and is a successful entrepreneur. Money tales are woven throughout Cicely's life's journey. Hi, this is Cammie. Cicely is the founder and CEO of the social enterprise, The Amplifiers. Standing at the intersection of cause and communications, she leads communication strategies for philanthropists and nonprofits committed to social justice. Cicely honed her skills at the Women's Sports Foundation and at the National Cares Mentoring Movement under the direct leadership of Susan L. Taylor, Editor-in-Chief Emeritus of Essence Magazine. Cicely is also part of Sarah Blakely Foundation's Red Backpack Brigade, which she talks to us about in this episode. Please stick around after the interview for our takeaways. Now, on to our conversation with Cicely Gay. Cicely Gay, welcome to Money Tales. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here and grateful that you're having me on today. We are pleased to have you and to get the conversation started, will you please give us a brief summary of your life today, focusing on two or three pivotal moments who really make you who you are at this moment? Absolutely. I am Cicely Gay, and there are many stories that make up the fabric of my being. I think one of the most pivotal is that I am an African-American woman who happened to be born in Topeka, Kansas, of all places. The perception of who I am and not being around people who looked like me or my family was something that started very early on. I am the daughter of educators. My parents were both teachers. So we certainly were not under-resourced by most standards, but I also didn't have anything passed down to me. My experiences around growing up have really been about creating a space for myself to ensure that I can become sustainable and be a productive human being. I'm also a mother. I am a mother of three sons that I'm raising in this very interesting world and country, particularly given the climate of what we've seen over the course of the last few years. I am a single mom, although I don't consider myself alone. I've raised them without the benefit of an additional parent since my youngest was only six months old. And so I'm someone who is always looking for building my village, gaining resources, learning from my mistakes, 
and hopefully creating a world that is prepared for them and their children to come. That's a great overview. Thank you. Cicely, tell us more about growing up. What was money like in your family? Were there conversations? Set the scene for us there. Yes. In my own self-discovery around my money story, I had to start thinking about why I had some of the fear around money and finances. The truth is I wasn't really taught about money. I was taught that money was associated with bills, that there is a scarcity mindset, what I call it right now, and that there's never enough. I learned about credit cards or what a credit card was the first time I stepped on a college campus. I remember going off to school and there being these tables upon tables in the open field area of our school of different credit card companies who were handing out t-shirts and water bottles. And I went from table to table and applied for every single one (laughs) to get every single t-shirt and water bottle I could. I did not understand credit. I did not understand money except that it was something that I earned to then immediately pay out to other people. And so I recognized very clearly as I grew up and started being responsible for my own credit and my own bills that I had a level of responsibility of creating a new story around money. And that story of scarcity started to be implanted in my own kids. It's really fascinating. I remember working at a job that I actually really enjoyed, but I had a supervisor that was very difficult. And my son, my youngest son at that point was six years old. And we were in my SUV. And I remember being on the phone with her and and talking about something that I was really proud of, but her not feeling that way. And getting off the phone and just feeling really broken. And it had happened multiple times in that position. And I put my head on the steering wheel. I was in a parking lot. And I put my head on the steering wheel. And I was at the point where I was getting ready to cry. And my son, who's six years old in the back seat, said, Mom, I think you need to go back to your other job. I don't think you need to work at this job anymore. And if we need to cancel the Disney Channel to do it, we should do it. That's what he said. We need to cancel the Disney Channel to do it. Now, (laughs) he fully didn't understand that I wasn't just working for the Disney Channel, but in his mind, money meant sacrifice. Money meant paying bills. Working meant sacrifice in order to pay those bills. And I realized for him, sacrifice meant the Disney Channel, right? Like in his little six-year-old mind, it was like, my mom is working and struggling and sacrificing for cable, and she's got to stop it because it just doesn't mean that much. And for a six-year-old to recognize that the work and the stress and the hurt and the sacrifice that I was making, not being as important as what I was making it out to be, really was telling to me. I had a conversation with my supervisor and walked away from that position the next day, the next day, without fully knowing what my next path was going to be, but knowing that I was going to reinvest in my own peace of mind and my own kids. And I knew at that point that I had enough skill sets that the money could follow. And I had hope that it would. Wow. Your six-year-old son. I love your mindset. It's amazing for this young being Obviously, there was a lot of teaching, whether it's modeling for him to come to that realization. Cicely, would you talk to us a little bit more about what a scarcity mindset is and why you think that was the case for you and your family? 
I mean, I think the reality of it is that oftentimes there just isn't enough. Oftentimes the money that is coming in does not meet the needs of the family. And when you are accustomed to living that way, you don't necessarily grow up thinking about plan A. You actually start to groom yourself and then eventually your children to default to plan B. And that became very true for me and very clear for me not that long ago. I remember being you know, professional enough to have had five figures worth of money in the bank. It scared the living daylights out of me when I saw five figures. I said, okay, there's somebody I've got to pay. There's somebody who's going to take this money. I need to do something with it quickly. Do I take it out? Do I put it in my mattress? Because it's not going to last. And the fear that I felt, as opposed to the pride in that accomplishment, said to me, okay, there's something wrong here. (laughs) You should not be afraid when you get to a point where you have a savings account that has enough money so that you can make it if something happens, which is essentially the purpose of rainy day or savings anyway, right? I remember that and thought, why am I this way? And I started having conversations with family members, certainly not in an accusatory manner, but talking to them about why it is we didn't save a lot of money, didn't have a lot of money, or when we did save it, why there was this fear of it being taken away. And while I didn't get all the answers in those preliminary conversations, I was speaking to another family member who had a dental need, a procedure that they needed. And they weren't talking to me about the actual procedure. They were talking to me about the pain that they were going through. And they asked me if I could buy them something on Amazon to alleviate the pain, some tool that they had heard of to alleviate the pain for this dental procedure. And finally, I said to them, what do you need done and how much does it cost? It was, to me, an amount of money that certainly, certainly didn't warrant the pain. And I ended up taking them to the dentist and paying cash for the procedure as soon as I could get them an appointment. And to this day, they treat me as if I'd given them a million dollars because I'd alleviated their pain. But I realized they never defaulted to plan A. Plan A is go to the dentist and get your tooth fixed. Instead, it was, I'm sure I can't afford it. I'm sure there's no one who can take care of it. So let me figure out all of these solutions, all these band-aids to help to alleviate, which really means prolong my pain. And so unfortunately, growing up with that scarcity mindset, not having enough, not feeling as if you have enough, not even believing you have enough to the point that you don't research how much things cost is something that I actually grew up with. And I've had to start to retrain myself to think about, let's look at plan A before we actually default to plan B. Cicely, what a powerful example that was. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's amazing that you had this awareness of the scarcity mindset. And I'm wondering, how did you go about shifting? Because for most people, having awareness is hard enough, but figuring out how to shift, how'd you do that? Yeah, I certainly can't take credit for doing it myself. I've always someone who's been naturally inquisitive, yet I've also been very fortunate to have some amazing leaders in my life. And I have a mentor. Her name is Susan L. Taylor. She was the editor-in-chief of Essence Magazine for over three decades. She is brilliant and insightful and wise. 
And I remember her first telling me a story when she was young. She happened to be a single mother herself. Her marriage ended, and she tells the story often when her child was only six months old. And while she worked in the beauty and fashion industry, she certainly wasn't being paid enough. There was a little bit of gravitas about her name, but her compensation didn't match up to what she unfortunately had worked to achieve. And I'm certainly not telling the story as well as she does, but she talks about what she knew that she went into a beauty school nearby her home, literally walked into a beauty school nearby her home and talked to the students there and talked to the teacher there and ended up tripling her income within 24 hours because of the resources she had within her. And so for me, I realized that the scarcity mindset was always about looking at my bank account and not taking inventory of the wealth of resources that actually existed, meaning my intellectual capital, my relationships, my work ethic, all of those things had value. By looking at her example of how she was able to garner more financial support because of the other resources she had, I started to think, well, gracious, I shouldn't have a scarcity mindset at all. I'm living in abundance. I have abundance of relationships, an abundance of ideas, an abundance of creativity and experiences. There is no dearth of experience in terms of the trajectory of my life, from being a mom to then a single mom to an educator to someone who worked in foundations who then started my own company. I have many, many stories to tell. And there are people who can learn and grow from those stories as well. And so I became very grateful about what I did have, as opposed to being concerned and nervous about what I didn't. This is tremendous. Cicely, why don't you share with us what it was like to be a single mom, how old you were, and what did you do to take care of yourself? Yeah, wow. I had my oldest son when I was 16 years old. I now have three sons. So, you know, I didn't add teen mom to one of those titles that was thrust upon me very young, but my first son I had in high school. And despite being someone who had ambition, I distinctly remember being categorized when that happened. I was put in a GED class, even though I had a high school degree. I actually skipped a grade when I was young, graduated when I was 17. But Although I had a high school diploma and was in a position where I actually was asking for public assistance, I was put into a category of someone who had a cap on my potential and also had a path that they thought had been laid out for me. I think I've only told this story one time, so it's really interesting. I was in this GED class. I was, again, 17 years old. I already had my degree. I was in this GED class with women up to 50, 60 years old, and I had a teacher in that class who actually started talking to me and realized I was intelligent and inquisitive, and I already had a high school diploma, and why was I in her class? And she gave me an opportunity to do outside work, so she would give me books by Toni Morrison or, you know, by Maya Angelou. And she would tell me to read these books and come back and write reports for her. And then I would turn the reports into games that I would actually teach the rest of the class with. I mean, this teacher, I should find her because she changed my life. 
So while I was in this GED class, I also remember being at the end where the people from the state or the system, whoever were you know, caseworkers who were governing us, were asking, okay, what's next? Where are you going to go? And what are you going to do? And these classes were at a local community college. They would actually come pick us up in a van and they would take us to this community college and we would go through our courses and then they'd actually take us home. And on the wall of the community college was a flyer, and it was about a program called AmeriCorps. And AmeriCorps is the the domestic peace corps. It's an initiative under the Corporation for National Service, where at that point, young people, 17 to 24, would give a year of time doing volunteer work in exchange for money for college. And because that money wasn't considered income, you could also qualify for the benefits I was receiving, like childcare or food assistance. It it didn't count as income. And I read that flyer on the wall one day and I thought, well, I could certainly give back and I certainly need childcare and I certainly want to go to college. And so paying attention to that flyer on the wall, having my teacher pay attention to me changed the trajectory of my life. And so I realized that sometimes the circumstances that you're in don't necessarily define you, and there can be resources right around you if you'd pay attention to them and if you'd take advantage of them. That teacher was my reference for AmeriCorps. I did a year of service, and that money paid for college. I ended up using that money and then doing another year of service. They call it AmeriCorps VISTA, which the first version was direct service where I was working within a school in an under-resourced community near a penitentiary. The second year I was doing indirect service. So I was learning about how to work behind the scenes at nonprofits. And I did that. And then I paid for the rest of college. Again, I certainly can't take credit for the blessings and gifts that have come into my life being all mine. But had I not had the right people in my life at the right time, And had I not been paying attention to the flyer on the wall, (laughs) to the resources that were right there, I certainly may have missed out on what would become my life's work. Cicely, this is incredible. Yeah, I'm giving you credit for turning opportunities into magic gold. That's not sounding like a scarcity mindset to me either, by the way. So it's very interesting. It's interesting. Some, a friend of mine that I worked with years ago came back into town not too long ago, and we went to dinner. This was before the uh, pandemic, of course, and we went to dinner, and I remember us talking about our path, and she's successful professionally, and we met doing very common work over a decade ago, and she says, gracious, you're just so brave. You've gotten up, and you've tried entrepreneurship, and you've moved invested in these new opportunities, you're so brave. And I'd never considered myself brave because to your point about the scarcity mindset, oftentimes you're doing things out of desperation. At least you think you are. I certainly didn't think that signing up for AmeriCorps was brave. And I didn't think that teaching the class was brave. I was just doing what I thought I needed to do in that moment to survive. But what I did realize was that they were opportunities and that I still believed in myself enough to give them a try and to take advantage of them when they did present themselves. So I'm curious, Cicely, when you were going through college, sounds like in between the AmeriCorps stints, what was your motivation there? 
in terms of study? Were you focused on trying to prepare yourself for a career that would allow you to pay the bills or were you focused on figuring out what really interested you and what you were passionate about? I never thought that people went to college to find a career that interested them. <laughs> I, I was, <laughs> that's not what I was ever taught. You know, I mentioned that I was the child of two educators and my mom often tells me the story of her being in school and having a teacher that says, you make all A's, are you thinking about college? And her family not really supporting that. Um, she was one of nine children and she was the first to go to college and grew up in Southeastern Virginia. And she and my father got married and moved to Topeka, Kansas with me, where his father was in the military. And so they were very different in terms of their willingness to go against the grain or be brave. And I remember thinking about what was next for me. College was always something that I expected to do. My parents both went to college. And so in our family, it was something that we knew would happen, although they didn't really lay out the path for me to get there. My mom tells me the story, though, of the, her teacher saying to her, nurse, secretary, or teacher, which one? And so she was college bound, but that degree was restricted by her participating or being a part of only three occupations, nurse, receptionist, secretary, or teacher. And of course, she thought, well, teacher probably makes the most sense for me. And so when I went to school, I thought, well, I love communications. I absolutely was interested in sharing or presenting news because that was something that was, you know, I, I mentioned being inquisitive. I liked learning things and then repackaging them and representing them in ways that people would hopefully embrace and understand. But I will say that, so I started out as a communications major because I thought I could make a living doing communications work, whether it was written or oral or wasn't sure at that point. But I thought I like news and I like speaking. I like journalism. So I, I think this is the path. But I will say that during the period of time where I actually needed help, where I was going to people at social services and learning a little bit about our government and how I was funneled in a certain lane without really people having time to know who I was or what I wanted, I became very interested in government. And so I changed my major halfway through to political science. I thought I wanted to practice law. I thought I wanted to advocate for people who were underserved or under-resourced like I was, but I ended up using both that political science acumen and the communications acumen to eventually work with nonprofits and foundations and then start my own social enterprise doing the same. And when I was 18 or 19 and making these decisions, I had no clue about entrepreneurship. I had no clue that in 2020, there would be racial uprisings across the country and organizations large and small would be looking for someone who understood how to articulate social justice needs or needs of nonprofit organizations through digital mechanisms. I had no idea that could be a job for me or that my business would pivot that way. But when I was in college, I absolutely started out thinking, gracious, how can I make money and take care of my family. And then it grew to be, wait a minute, this is something that I actually care about. How can I give back and make a difference? And then learned that, wow, the money can come. I think about all the work you're doing that's created the opportunities for this success. And 
to me, when I hear the story, there's just no surprise. Share with us what it felt like to become an entrepreneur and to start your own business. And what was your vision? What were you worried about? And what were you most excited about? And I want to add in, how close in proximity was it to the time that you had the conversation with your son in the car? Two days later. Was it really? Yes. I'll start there. The next day I resigned. The day after that, I was riding on the highway and I got a phone call from my previous employer. And this is how I believe money is energy. I believe what we appreciate, appreciates. What we invest in grows. And this is how I know because I'm paying attention to the flyer on the wall and I'm paying attention to the signs that are around me. I'm intentionally quite observant and curious, right? Two days later, I'm driving on the highway and the position that my son told me I should go back to, I'd kept in touch with many of my colleagues there and love them to this day. One of the staff members there calls me and that was nothing new. She touched base over time. And she said, you know, I know you're busy. Well, I wasn't busy. I just quit my job. But she said, I know you're busy, but we need a consultant to help us do the work that you used to do with us. And it would only be for three months while we get through this gap. We just had someone who left and we're just wondering if we can hire you as a consultant. And I thought, you have got to be kidding me. I'm being paid to do something I want to do with the flexibility to spend time with my sons. It certainly wasn't enough money to pay the bills at that point, but I realized I had a Rolodex. Now it's not a Rolodex. It's a, you know, not a literal Rolodex, but I had a virtual network of people who knew who I was, understood my work, and to whom I was very valuable. And So then I met with my younger sister. We're 10 years apart and we're very close. And I told her I got a consultant opportunity and I'm going to, of course, take it. And it was fantastic. I was actually helping them evaluate grants. So I worked for a foundation and I was their senior program officer. And I was the one first who was applying for money for under-resourced organizations. So I was very close to that work as a program person. And then after years grew and evolved and became the person who determined who received the money. So I'd be looking at grant applications and really helping to nail down the best projects and the best programs who were making the most impact. And so the consultant role was literally helping them review grant applications. I was sitting there reading and identifying and helping provide technical assistance to all of these nonprofits all over the country who were looking for funding. And it gave me insight into what funders were thinking about, what nonprofits were doing. It was work that I absolutely knew and loved. And it was just what I needed in that moment to ensure myself that I had exactly what I needed to continue to do this work for other nonprofits. And so I sat down with my little sister at Starbucks and I remember sitting there and saying, I think I'm going to start my own business. I'm a consultant now, so I've got to figure out this whole W9 thing and how does this work? Do I get a tax ID? And she was someone who is a millennial. And oftentimes she's told me, millennials believe in multiple streams of income. Cicely. So you need to figure it out. We don't just do one thing. If we're not on TikTok or we're figuring out how to sell something. And so she said, multiple streams of income are the way. I said, okay, I'm going to do it. And I don't quite know what I'm doing, but I know I enjoy 
being the connector between the people who are resourced and the people who are under-resourced. I mentioned my mentor and I was able through working in foundations to work with people who are highly resourced, well-known, public figures, but also always had a connection and devotion to working with people who were at a point like me, underserved, under-resourced, didn't have money to make ends meet or trying to take care of their families. And so I always wanted to be that broker of goodwill, someone who was in the middle trying to connect the two. I said, you know, what keeps happening is that I come into these organizations, whether they're a foundation or philanthropist who wants to start an organization or a nonprofit who just is doing amazing work but doesn't know how to articulate it into a grant, and I just make it better. I just come in and I refine their proposal or I come in and I refine their process. I just make it better. I just amplify things. And she said, that's it. That's the name of your company, The Amplifiers. You literally come in and support nonprofit organizations or philanthropists or charitable endeavors and you refine them and you come in and you support nonprofits, charities, things you're passionate about, and you make them better. And that's how I started my company. I met with one of my former colleagues at the Women's Sports Foundation is the foundation that where I cut my teeth and where I was groomed. And she herself started her own organization. So I sat down with her and met with her and I said, I think I'm going to do this. And she was doing different work. She runs this amazing consultant agency where she incorporates sports and physical activity and peace, all kinds of social and emotional learning. She said, well, the first thing you have to do when you start your company is stop saying I, say we. <laughs> you know, when you're talking to folks, I know it's only you, but stop saying, stop saying I, say we. And then that's not dishonest. A, it presents you in a more professional way to potential clients and candidates or people who are going to be working with you. But B, it really does speak to the wealth of resources that you're bringing to bear. You're not coming alone. You've got a whole list of people who are willing to work with you and support you and work with any organization that you're going to be working with. So I remember being really afraid of moving from I to we, but listening to that colleague and it reassuring me as I was starting my business that it really was possible and that I wasn't alone. So when you speak about this right now, you sound so confident, self-assured, like you knew what was going to happen. No, (laughs) no, not at all. I also remember sending out an email to everyone I'd ever worked with after I was able to get like a web page up in a little bit of desperation because bills were due, telling people I was consulting. So there was a whole lot of faith that I utilized. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know about starting a business. I didn't know about the business of the business, the tax side and what that would mean. I didn't know where I was going to get my next client from. I had no idea if I was going to be able to make up the salary that I was making at my previous job, but I did bank on myself. And I also felt reassured that no matter what happened, I was putting my family first. I had that little six-year-old in the back of my mind who saw me have a breakdown because I was working with someone who I felt didn't appreciate me. And so um, at the end of the day, when I was picking him up in the carpool line, 
because I wasn't at work and I wasn't stressed out and I was listening to him and I was going to the park and showing up at games, I was reassured that I was making the right choices. And yes, we, I think, reduced our cable package. <laughs> so I was going to ask. So thanks for that. I think he still got Disney, but there were some sacrifices personally I absolutely made. I moved, I downsized. I really focused on trying to build out my relationships. But I coupled that with the reassurance that I was being filled up in other ways. Saw my sons who are now just three amazing, amazing guys. My oldest one is a professional actor. My middle one is a division one lacrosse player, which is almost unheard of if you are African-American and from the South. And my youngest is now being recruited from colleges all over the country to play football. And so each of them have two found their own paths. I know that wouldn't have been possible if I wouldn't have had the time to really take a step back and not always have been in go, 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 travel, 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 work, work, work. You need the money mode during that period of time. It was an additional and unexpected benefit of walking away from that level of stress. One other story that I'm thinking about now during that period of time, I've kind of mentioned my philosophy is to be grateful and to be inquisitive and to be creative. And when I think about being creative, I do think about the story that Susan told me about how she made more money. But I also remember being in a situation where I worked full time and I was about to get a raise. So of course, you know, as you're going after the money, you're thinking, of course, I want a raise and I want to be upwardly mobile and I want more responsibility. I remember this raise was going to put me in the next tax bracket. While I was so grateful at this job that I was being rewarded this way, I started thinking about what I really needed. And this is where the creativity comes into play. And at that point, I'm a single mom with three kids. I'm traveling all over the country. It's a high stress job, rewarding, but I was really busy and working a lot. And I remember going to my supervisor, this was a different supervisor who was, she's wonderful, and saying to her, I don't think I can take this raise because it's going to mean more responsibility, but ultimately to my bottom line, I'm not going to be making more money. I'm going to be paying more in taxes. And I'm not going to feel the impact of this raise. She said, well, let's talk about what you pay for. What are these expenses? And I felt transparent enough with her to say, well, my kids, of course. I negotiated a driver for my kids instead of a raise. And the company ended up saving money because it was less than what they were going to pay me. So I had someone who would pick my kids up from school every day. And they would bring them to me. It gave me an hour, an additional hour in my day. It didn't put me in the next tax bracket. It helped reassure me when I was out of town and when I was able to travel. But it's an example of how I was able to work with my employer, figure out a way to be creative, think about what I really needed and what resources really were, and reconfigure an opportunity so it benefited my life in an amazing way. And they said, yes, who knew, right? Like who knew they'd say, well, sure, of course we'll get you a driver. We're going to save $5,000 a year. And that's what they did. That creativity just shines and no wonder you've been so successful. I'd love to hear about something that I read on your LinkedIn profile. I learned you're the recipient of 
the Red Backpack Fund, a grant from Sarah Blakely and Team Spanx. Would you share with us a little bit about that? Like, how did you achieve it? And what does that mean? This was just last year. I am such a fan of Sarah Blakely. If you don't follow her on LinkedIn, you absolutely should. She is motivating and inspiring and often tells the story of resilience and how she believed in herself and her idea enough to go around from store to store to store carrying a red backpack in hopes that they would invest in her idea. So she too has decided to give back in her you know, spirit of gratitude and benevolence to other female entrepreneurs who she's recognized may need additional capital or collateral to continue their business. And in addition to the money, she actually cut a check. She's included me in a group of other members of the Red Backpack Brigade is what she calls us. And we meet on Zoom calls. Um, She's given us access to masterclass so we can take lessons online. We connect with one another. She pours into us as a leader and as someone who had to think outside the box and is now a billionaire because of her idea. And I got that award and became a member in 2020 during a pandemic when people have been taught that it's one of the worst years of many people's lives. And it was the reassurance and pat on the back and support that I absolutely needed to continue pushing through in that year of uncertainty and sometimes insecurity. And so I am so proud to be a member of Sarah Blakely's Red Backpack Brigade and and I'm learning from her about how you're not done even when you may become a billionaire and you may be at the pinnacle of your career. There are still ways that you can give back and invest in people who may be like you. That's wonderful. Congratulations on being part of the brigade. We have a hashtag and everything. (laughs) There are some phenomenal women in that brigade. I'm curious, Cicely, about your experience with that in relation to the consulting work that you're doing today and your work with philanthropies. My work at the Amplifiers, when I first started, I mentioned I wanted to be the broker of goodwill. I wanted to be the individual who was enough, in the know enough, rather, to have the inside scoop on who was funding what and what programs were best in class and needed to be funded. I was finding that oftentimes I worked with athletes Oftentimes, first, athletes would hire a family member to run their foundation. They would come into what they considered a windfall, and they wouldn't really understand the infrastructure of nonprofit, philanthropy, or charity. So I thought I was going to be the one who was going to be the broker, the broker of goodwill, and was going to be connecting these philanthropists and these nonprofits. And I did that, and I did it successfully at the beginning of the term of the company's founding. I call my, the, enterprise, the amplifiers, I call it a social enterprise. But what I also realized by being observant is that oftentimes it wasn't the connector that they needed, it was the communicator. What I began doing was really taking a deep dive, a hard look at the fact that many of these philanthropists just wanted a mouthpiece. They wanted to refine their messaging. They wanted someone who could help them articulate their passion. And oftentimes many of these nonprofits on the other end needed someone to help them articulate the amazing work that they were doing. 
And so I didn't start out, I mean, the name of the company is The Amplifiers, but it is literally true. The work is at the intersection of cause and communications. And so I happened to be in that space in 2020 when we couldn't meet each other face to face. And so the communications piece became very, very important to me and to my clients and to the world. There was a whole lot of being in the right place at the right time, but also investing in this path and doing work really well and building a reputation for myself so that when people did need someone in the philanthropic or nonprofit communication space, and that's moved quite a bit to digital media now, they knew who to call. The majority of my work was referral in 2020. I grew my staff by three in 2020 during a global pandemic, won an award from you know, a female billionaire in 2020. I'm so proud and excited that because I didn't look at what people thought would happen and limit my expectations, but instead continued to pivot and be resourceful and pay attention, that I was able to do that and also grow my business in the meantime. So tell us, Cicely, talking about money is really hard. Have you had these conversations? Have you ever told your family or friends how much you make? I literally just told my sister. And I didn't tell her because I was trying to explain how much I make. I was telling her because I needed her advice on the next move I was about to make. And it was really hard and it was really intimidating. And it was actually after doing my taxes where I said, whoa, 2020 was a really good year. And what do I do now? I'm at this point where I'm not in the scarcity mindset space anymore. If I were to share this number with someone else, they would say, okay, the struggle is real, but it's also overrated. And I don't want to go back there anymore. (laughs) Like this whole struggle culture thing. Okay. I get it when you need to be there, but if you don't have to be there, don't. And so I recently did tell her about how we did in 2020. And I was proud, but also recognized that got tremendous responsibility because who wants to go backwards? And the more you make, I think the more intimidating it can be if you don't at least start thinking about a plan or what's important to you or spaces that you can continue to fill to maintain and sustain. Cicely, I'm curious, what's the most meaningful way that you've used money in your life? It would have to be to invest in the lives of others. There's no greater joy than seeing that you have solved a problem for someone else. I mentioned I saw someone who was literally physically in pain, and I was able to alleviate that physical pain and didn't see any difference in my lifestyle or any sacrifice that I had to make because of it. Those people could be family members. They're certainly my sons. I'm constantly investing and pouring into their lives with the resources that I have. It could be giving back to some of the charities that I support. I am most fulfilled, absolutely, when I'm able to invest in the lives of others. I will say, though, that I had a piano when I was young. My mom sold it, and she sold it for money. She sold it because we needed money at that point in time. And two years ago, I bought myself a black baby grand piano. 
And my mom was in tears when she saw it and said, everything that was taken away or that was lost is coming back to us. Certainly, I think the altruistic answer is giving back and investing in others. I found a tremendous amount of joy when I was able to go in and in cash purchase that baby grand piano. (laughs) I'm so glad you shared that. It's really important, I think, to take care of ourselves. And that sounds like a really meaningful purchase. How often are you playing it? Not as much as I should. It's interesting though, my sons challenge me because while I play a lot of traditional songs, they're always sending me more modern music, like rap songs to learn. So I'm actually learning all kinds of hip hop and rap songs and playing them for my sons on the piano, which is really cool. Oh my goodness, we might need to hear that. (laughs) Might be, yeah, yeah. It's really fun when it comes together. They start hearing me and they come out from wherever they are and awe and inspired that I figured it out. You've shared a ton of wisdom with us. I'm going to push it though. What's one piece of money wisdom you'd like to share with our listeners that we haven't yet covered? I would like to say that one of the ways that I've found success is by not being afraid to ask questions. So I mentioned being inquisitive, but I do think it is bold to ask questions and vulnerable as well. There's a scene in the movie, The Pursuit of Happiness with Will Smith, where he's actually outside of a big office, a corporate office on Wall Street, and a wealthy man, while he is a struggling father, pulls up. I'm not sure if you've seen the scene, but this wealthy man pulls up in a really fancy sports car, and he humbled himself enough to say, what do you do? Right. And that changed the trajectory of his life. And so I love it when I have moments to ask questions and learn. And when people ask questions of me, this is certainly not at the same level, but I remember getting a platinum Amex from a company I worked for, Platinum American Express. And I was traveling somewhere, you know, really quickly in the airport. So this was not even my credit card, but it was a credit card I had access to. And I stopped and bought myself some food at one of the stores. And the the young girl who was checking me out, she handed me back the card and she said, how do you get that? And I said, how do you get what? And kind of looked around like, what is she talking about? She said, you're the first black person I've seen with that card. She was an African-American girl, probably... 18 years old. She said, you were the first black person I've ever seen with that card. How do you get that? And I said, well, I got it from my job, but do you mean an American Express? She said, well, yes, an American Express, but how do you even get a credit card? I am literally in the airport talking to someone who takes credit cards from people every single day, but never felt comfortable enough or vulnerable enough to just ask, how do you get that? And I remember telling her about going to the bank and opening a bank account and not just applying for every credit card she sees like I did when I was in college. Careful of the t-shirts and the water bottles, but very similarly on a different scale to what happened in the pursuit of happiness, she asked, how do you get that? And so I found myself in amazing situations with phenomenal people like my mentor, who have been vulnerable and honest and open enough. And I too have returned that vulnerability by doing the same and asking, how did you get that? What did you do? And certainly their path is not always mine, but there's something I can learn from it and take from it. So the answer to your question for me is to continue to be intellectually curious and bold and vulnerable enough 
to learn, to watch, to look for the flyer on the wall that may be an opportunity, but certainly to ask questions of people who may be in a position that you aspire to be in one day. Cicely, that's what Sandy and I get to do with these money tales. We get to ask questions and learn, and it's the biggest gift. Thank you for that response. Thank you. Thank you for, this is so cathartic, really examining some of my own beliefs and, and my own moral foundation and my own values and my own path. And, you know, I mentioned I live in a space of gratitude and I really believe that what I'm grateful for does appreciate the way I appreciate things shows up every day, taking inventory of those things and, be, and having the opportunity to talk about them only adds to that list of some of the things I may have forgotten about. I've got to find that teacher who invested in me and thank her, or if I can't, do the same thing for someone else. So I really appreciate you all and what you do and having me on. It's been wonderful for me. Before we wrap up, we want to ask you one more question, Cicely, which is, what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? That's a good one. I think I owe my sister, my younger sister, another money conversation. She's taught me a lot about the multiple streams of income. I certainly feel comfortable enough talking to her about dollars and cents. I would love to unpack this conversation that I've had with her since we come from the same family to figure out where some of those beliefs have come from. I'll continue to have a conversation with her. She's a brilliant, young, powerful woman who's making her way up in the world. But I also think that I'm going to be talking certainly to many of my clients about their investments and the investments that they're making and other young women who may be like me or the organizations whose doors they grace that may need to figure out how they're better supporting them. So both personal and professional. Cicely, we wish you the most amount of luck and success with those important conversations. And we thank you so much for what is really a truly a gift of a conversation. It was so wonderful talking with you today. We appreciate the vulnerability and the gratitude that you brought to this conversation and we return it. And Cicely, you're a force to be reckoned with. You're an amazing, amazing woman. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Tammy, wow, what a conversation. Tell me, what's your biggest takeaway from all the great stories that Cicely Gay shared with us? Well, first of all, Sandy, you can tell why she founded the Amplifiers. She is so articulate, and I really appreciate it and hung on every word she said. One of the things that really hit me strongly was this notion of what we appreciate appreciates. And she started out with that story about being a 16-year-old single mom. You knew she was smart and she got categorized. I feel so oppressed when I hear that word. I, I feel a tightness in my chest because she got categorized and assumed that she was only going to go so far. But Cicely had something within her to push beyond any of the expectations while also finding a mentor and then leaning into a flyer that she saw that really helped her. Remember that, Sandy? Yes. I thought that was an incredible start to her life. I loved the story about how she got into college and I loved how that creativity was a thread that she wove throughout her life. Remember the story she shared about the raise that she got and how 
she worked with her boss to rework the raise so that it would really make a material impact on her life. I thought that was so lovely. And I definitely made a note about that because I think sometimes we get just stuck in the mold of thinking dollars and cents and really what we should be thinking about is what helps make our lives better and helps us achieve what matters most to us. Right on, Sandy. When you heard her say the scarcity mindset, what were you thinking when she presented that idea? I was really glad she brought it up. This is something that I'm aware of through my reading, through the relationships I have in life. But I don't think it's a concept that's come up very much before money tales. And so the idea behind scarcity mindset is the person with that mindset really thinks about life as having limiting resources, whether it's money or other resources. And I thought it was really fascinating what Cicely mentioned about her seeing throughout her family the institutionalizing of Plan B. It was insightful for her to bring it to life for us through the dental story. I get it, but I also appreciate what she was saying is to helping her family, you know, and anybody she can influence, see things differently, create opportunities, ask that plan A question first. I'm thinking, how can I bring this into my own life? There's probably times where I go to plan B before thinking about plan A. And it's a great thing to be reminded of. Yeah, it's a great lens to put on and and to think about decision-making. Cicely's story about being afraid of having money in the bank was another example of her scarcity mindset. She wasn't used to having that much money and there it was in her bank account and it made her afraid. So I was really happy that Cicely brought this up. And of course, the opposite of the scarcity mindset is an abundance mindset. The cool thing about mindsets is that you have the ability to change your mindset. It is just a way of looking at the world. And I think Cicely's stories were a great inspiration for those of us with scarcity mindsets to reconsider and try to shift our attention toward abundance. And I think the example that Cicely brought up about when she started her business and realized that she had a lot of other resources to draw upon that were outside of her financial resources. She talked about all the relationships that she had and how she reached out to her network, how she tapped into her intellectual capital and used her smarts, what she'd learned along the way, and also became okay with the idea of learning more in her life. Also, she has a lot of spiritual capital in her life. She really has a lot of faith that things will work out and that if she keeps appreciating what she appreciates, it will appreciate. Another thing she shared with us is that she's observant and curious. And I think that's part of her capital as well. She asks questions of people. And through these questions, she learns and grows. This is what you and I get to do on this podcast every day, is ask questions of really smart people like Cicely. And she takes that to heart. I love the conversation she had with her sister. I have her sister in my brain and this, I almost feel like I was with them and her sister saying, Cicely, I'm a millennial. Millennials believe in multiple streams of capital, multiple streams of revenue. That was just a wonderful insight from her sister that's brilliant as Cicely was about to launch a business. She was really scared about it. She ended up saying, I'm banking on myself, these relationships thought the sister's advice was really a a valuable one. 
I'm glad you brought that up, Cammie, because it dovetails well with the advice that Cicely gave listeners, which is to ask questions. And it's always important to ask questions. And I know sometimes we can be in situations where it seems scary to ask a question or you just don't want to feel dumb and you start becoming too judgmental of yourself. So I think it was great that she brought not only that story to life about asking questions, but also the story at the airport and about the young woman behind the cash register asking her about her credit card, which is a great example of how to ask questions about money and other financial matters. Cicely brought in that conversation, she said, continue to be intellectually curious and bold and vulnerable enough to learn and watch and look for the flyer on the wall that might change your life. And I think that question that that young girl asked Cicely, I think it did change her life. You know, now she knows. How did you get that? I love thinking that that's a pebble in the water and a wave is being built. Me too, Cammie. And I'm curious, has anyone ever asked you a question where you thought, that's stupid? I'm so glad you asked that question because no, no. Why are we so afraid? I always think, gosh, that's great. I'm so glad. Even if it's a question that feels basic. I love that people ask any question. I think that is one of the skills that this podcast has been teaching me is that the more you ask questions, the easier it is to ask more. Well said, Sandy. Thanks so much. Thank you, Cicely Gay, for being part of our journey and sharing such rich stories with our listeners and helping us learn and grow through your experiences. Yes. Thank you, Cicely. I feel like we've made a new friend. And speaking of our friends, to our listeners, you can always reach us at podcasts at com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening to Money Tales. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.